Good morning. Today we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Now move on to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to worship me, the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob told everyone in his household, Destroy your idols, wash yourselves, and put on clean clothing. We are now going to Bethel where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress. He has stayed with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all their idols and their earrings, and he buried them beneath the tree near Shechem. When they set out again, terror from God came over the people in all the towns of that area, and no one attacked them. Finally, they arrived in Luz, now called Bethel in Canaan. Jacob built an altar there and named it El Bethel, because God had appeared to him there at Bethel when he was fleeing from Esau. Soon after this, Rebekah's old nurse, Deborah, died. She was buried beneath the oak tree in the valley below Bethel. Ever since, the tree has been called the Oak of Weeping. God appeared to Jacob once again when he arrived at Bethel after traveling from Padan Aram. God blessed him and said, Your name is no longer Jacob. You will now be called Israel. Then God said, I am God Almighty. Multiply and fill the earth. Become a great nation, even many nations. Kings will be among your descendants. And I will pass on to you the land I gave to Abraham and Isaac. Yes, I will give it to you and your descendants. Then God went up from the place where he had spoken to Jacob. Jacob set up a stone pillar to mark the place where God had spoken to him. He then poured wine over it as an offering to God and anointed the pillar with olive oil. Jacob called the place Bethel, house of God, because God had spoken to him there. Leaving Bethel, they traveled on toward Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. But Rachel's pains of childbirth began while they were still some distance away. After a very hard delivery, the midwife finally exclaimed, Do not be afraid. You have another son. Rachel was about to die, but with her last breath, she named him Ben-Honai. The baby's father, however, called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a stone monument over her grave, and it can be seen there to this day. Jacob then traveled on and camped beyond the Tower of Eder. While he was there, Reuben slept with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and someone told Jacob about it. These are the names of the twelve sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons born to Jacob at Padan Aram. So Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, which is near Kiriath Arba, now called Hebron, where Abraham had also lived. Isaac lived for 180 years, and he died at a ripe old age, joining his ancestors in death. Then his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. This is the word of God.
Morning, Whitefields. Good to be with you this Sunday. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Um, you know, Jeff mentioned that we all look very festive. I think that was his way of saying that we look fat. But I might just be, <laughs> I might just be oversensitive, you know. I get a little self-conscious around the holidays. So, uh, you know, for Rosemary and I, this was our first time uh, having Thanksgiving in the U.S. in uh, over 10 years. So um, we had a really good time. I love it that in this country we have a major holiday dedicated to giving thanks to God for all that he's given us. Um, I think it's important. It's very biblical to foster in ourselves a spirit of thankfulness and appreciation. That's a very biblical thing to do. You know, one thing that Rosemary and I want to say that we're thankful for and let you know about is that um, we're thankful for all the love and support we've received from you here at Whitefields over this past year. So thank you for that. Um, Today is the last Sunday in November. And next Sunday is not only the first Sunday in December, but it's also the first Sunday in Advent. So today we are still in Genesis, but in the month of December we're going to take a break from Genesis and we're going to have a special Advent series, which is going to be titled A New Day Dawning. And this is going to be a special look at the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. And personally I find the kingdom of God and and what all that means to be one of the most intriguing uh, topics in all of scripture. So you're not going to want to miss that. That'll be the month of December. Um, the section we've been studying in Genesis for the last couple weeks has been all about Jacob. Today we are wrapping up Jacob's story, and that's why this is actually a really good place for us to take a break from Genesis. Because when we pick it up in the new year, we're going to be looking at the final saga, which makes up the narrative of Genesis, and that is the story of Joseph. You know, it's been said before many times, probably you've heard people say similar things, that uh, people never really change, Right? If someone is a a thief or a liar or a cheater, well then they will always be basically a thief or a liar or a cheater. That will be their default. That will be their MO. There's no use expecting them to change one day. They just are who they are, period. You know, in our popular culture, whether it's right or not, uh, popular culture tells us that wives are famous for wanting to change their husbands. Maybe you've heard of uh, the musical about a newly married couple, which is titled, I love you, you're perfect, now change. Right? That kind of sums it up. Uh, I remember once reading a book about marriage, and it said that when a couple gets married, usually the wife goes into the marriage with the hope and expectation that her husband will change with time. Whereas when a man gets married, he goes into it with the hope that his wife will never change from that day. That she'll stay exactly like that. Now, now I realize those are very broad generalizations, but, but I remember actually talking to a couple a few years ago for counseling, and the wife said this about her husband. She said, he has all these habits and characteristics and things he does, and I just can't stand them. He's exactly the same as he was when we got married. He hasn't changed at all. You know, Uh, and it's times like that when people look at that and they say, you know, you're just naive if you expect someone to change. People don't change. They just are who they are, period, and you need to accept that. But the Bible has something different to say. The Bible would actually agree with the idea that people don't just change on their own. That people are actually even incapable of changing who they are. However, one of the great messages of God's word, one of the great messages of the gospel is that God can and does 
step into people's lives and transform them on a basic fundamental level. He can change who they are. He can change the direction, the trajectory of their life. And and there's no one who's beyond redemption. That's what the gospel says. There's no one who's a hopeless case. The message of God's word is that the only hope for real and lasting change and transformation of who a person is on a basic fundamental level is in Christ. Because when you put your faith in Christ, what happens is when you believe on the gospel, the spirit of God enters into your life and begins to change you. He makes you into a new person. He gives you a new direction, a new identity, and a new future. And as you walk with him, he just continues to do that. He continues to change you and transform you to the point where the contrast between who you were and who you are and who you're becoming is so great that you're really not the same person that you were at one time. That's why Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, you know, a very well-known verse. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So today we're looking at Genesis chapter 35. Like I said, this kind of wraps up the story of Jacob. Uh, And in this chapter, we see a Jacob who is a very different person than the Jacob we met at first in Genesis chapter 25. He's come a long way. God has taken hold of his life and he's turned him from a problem into a patriarch. And now we see the evidence of that, how far God has taken him, how much God has transformed him. We see that in his actions. So we're going to break it down like this. Today in our story, God speaks to Jacob about three areas of his life. And God gives Jacob, number one, a renewed direction. Number two, God gives Jacob a transformed identity. And number three, he gives Jacob a new community. That's what we're going to be looking at. A renewed direction, a transformed identity, and a new community. So first, let's look at this, this first eight verses, a renewed direction. In our study through Genesis for the past few weeks, we've been looking at what God has done in the life of Jacob. And we've seen what? We've seen that God chose him. God pursued him. God reached out to him, and God took hold of his heart. And Jacob responded to the grace of God by giving his life to the Lord. He dedicated himself to walk with God, to serve God, to worship God all the days of his life. And the name of that place where he met God was Bethel. That was the place where God revealed himself to him. That was the place where Jacob came to faith and dedicated his life to the Lord. It was Bethel. Originally, that place was called Luz or Luz. If you're from there, I guess it means that you're a loser. It means separation. Separation. How symbolic is that? But Jacob says this place will no longer be called separation. This place will be called the house of God. This is the place where I experience God's presence calls it Bethel. It was the place where he came to know the Lord, the place where he entered into real living relationship with God. But that was over 20 years now, 20 years ago. He's been a believer for 20 years. But notice what happens here in chapter 35 verse 1. It says that God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God is calling Jacob to return to Bethel to return to Bethel and worship him there. God, or, sorry, Jacob has been living in Shechem. This is what we looked at last week. He's been having some family difficulties. To make a long story short, he has not been doing a great job as a dad. 
He hasn't been leading his family well. He has been worshiping, right? He built an altar in Shechem. He was worshiping. But even though he's been worshiping well, he hasn't been doing a good job leading his household. He hasn't been leading his family well. And and because of his failure as a father, some very tragic and terrible things have happened. That's what we saw last week. And that's, that's really a problem, you know. It's a problem if you are good at worshiping God, but your worship of God doesn't affect the other areas of your life. If your worship of God doesn't affect how you are as a parent or a spouse or how you are in your workplace, then something's wrong, something's awry, something's not connecting. If your worship of God doesn't affect the entirety of your life, if it doesn't affect every sphere of your life, then maybe your worship has become nothing more than just going through the motions. And that's very possible. If there's one thing that we can observe from Christian culture in America, it is that it is totally, absolutely possible to go to church, to go through the motions of Christianity without having it really affect the way that you live. But notice this, God has not given up on Jacob. And now God speaks to Jacob and calls him back to Bethel. He's calling Jacob back to the place of fellowship with him. He's speaking to him. He's giving him a renewed direction. He's reminding him where he came from and where he's supposed to be going. God's speaking to him. He says, Jacob, your family is a mess. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to return to Bethel. Return to the place where we started together. And build an altar there and worship me there again. You know, somewhere along the way, over the course of the past 20 years, Jacob has gotten off course. And God wants to give him a renewed direction. You know, this is the equivalent of when Jesus speaks to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, and he says, you know, there are a lot of things that you guys are doing well and doing right, but there's one thing I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen and repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. You know, all of us, as we walk with the Lord from time to time, we need to receive a renewed direction, a renewed vision of where we came from and where we're going. So God speaks to Jacob and he says, return to the place where you first met me. Return to that place and build an altar there and worship me again. He's giving Jacob a a fresh start, a renewed direction. And notice how Jacob responds in verse 2. He calls his family together. He says, okay, everybody, gather around. We're going to have a family meeting, you know. God spoke to me, and we're going to have some changes around here. We're going to get rid of our idols. We're going to purify ourselves. We're going to change our clothes, and we're going to go and worship God. If you can imagine, this is, this is kind of like the dad who, who realizes that he's been blowing it, leading his family spiritually. And he comes, one, comes home one day, and he calls a family meeting. You know, he says, wife, kids neighbors, friends, you know, relatives, God spoke to me. And some things are going to change around here now. We're going to start having family devotions. We're going to start going to church. Does anybody remember where our church is? Because we haven't been there in a while, but we're going to find out where our church is, and then we're going to start going there again as a family. And we're going to clean house. We're going to get rid of anything in our household that isn't pleasing to the Lord. 
you know, Junior, we're going to get rid of the magazines under your mattress. And, and Susie, your boyfriend is 20 years older than you. You're gonna, and he's not a Christian. And you're going to have to break up with them. We're cleaning house. We're going to walk with the Lord. We're going to be a Christian family, not just in name, but we're going to do it in deed as well. It's going to be for real. That's what's going on here. You know, in the last chapter, Jacob failed as a father. But now God speaks to him. And he reminds him of Bethel. The place where he met the Lord and his life changed and, and he was born again. The place where he was so blown away by this revelation, this vision he got of God. And, and this revelation of God's grace to him and God's love for him. He was so blown away by, the, by, by it that he dedicated his life to the Lord. And, and not only did he become a believer, but he became a worshiper of God. He dedicated his life to serving God. But somewhere along the line, right, in the course of 20 years... He, he's just started going through the motions religiously. And these idols and foreign gods have somehow found his, their way into his household. They've taken root. And so just like Jacob, I believe that for us too, it's totally possible to be a worshiper of God, but yet have idols that have crept into your life and into your household. But notice this, God speaks to Jacob and he tells him, return to Bethel and worship me there. Notice, God doesn't tell Jacob, get rid of your idols, and then you can come worship me. No, God just says, come to Bethel, return to the place of fellowship with me. And he offers him a second chance and a fresh start. And what does Jacob do? He cleans house, but he does it in response to God's grace towards him. He remembers Bethel and he remembers God's grace towards him. And that's when it seems that his, his eyes are opened and he just wakes up from this spiritual sleepwalk that he's been in for the last few years. And he said, what are we doing here? We need to get rid of these idols. We need to get back on track. I need to start leading my family in the ways of the Lord. I need to lead my family to Bethel. And that's what grace does. When I realize how kind and good and benevolent and merciful God's been to me, day after day, it makes me want to put away the idols from my life. It makes me want to clean house and get rid of the things in my life that aren't pleasing to the Lord. You know, too often we think like this. We think, I've got to get my life cleaned up, and then maybe, just maybe, I can hear God's voice if I clean up my life first. Maybe then he'll speak to me. Maybe then he'll lead me again. But what we see here is this, that God is ready to lead you and speak to you right where you are today. And because of that, because of his grace, we say, Lord, you're good. And I don't want the things of the world anymore. I want a clean house and I want to return to Bethel. So Jacob's family members, what do they do? They give him all their idols and their trinkets and he goes and buries them under a tree. That's how you throw things away back in the day, right? You dig a hole under a tree, you toss your stuff in there and you fill in the hole. Goodbye. It's gone. You know, in the same way, God calls us to take the junk of our lives and do what? Bury them under the tree, at the foot of the tree, at the foot of the cross of Calvary. And maybe you would say, I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't know if I have what it takes to get rid of this thing from my life, even though I know it doesn't please the Lord. But what we need to see is that on the cross, that's why we bury it at the foot of the tree, because on the cross, Jesus set us free from the power of sin. He set us free from bondage to sin. And in him, you do have the strength to overcome anything because he empowers you with the ability to obey the things he calls you to do.
So Jacob and his family, their life takes a new direction, a renewed direction, because God gave them a second chance, a fresh start. Jacob had gotten off track in his walk with God. He was still worshiping, but he was just going through the motions, apparently. Idolatry had taken root in his household. But God calls Jacob back to Bethel, back to the place of fellowship, back to the place where he first encountered God, where he first realized the grace of God and the love of God towards him. And maybe there are some of you here today who, who just need a renewed direction. Oh, maybe you've been walking with the Lord, you've been worshiping, you've been going through the motions, but, but maybe foreign gods and idols have taken root in your heart in your life, in your household. And you need to hear the word of the Lord calling you back to Bethel, calling you to return to the love you had at first, when you first encountered the grace of God, when you were so blown away by God's love and grace to you, you, when you were blown away by what Christ did for you on the cross, when it moved you. And maybe like Jacob, there are some things in your life that you need to bury at the foot of the tree at the foot of the cross, so that you can also rise up and return to Bethel. Return to the place of fellowship with God with a renewed focus and a renewed direction. So after giving Jacob a renewed direction, secondly, we see that God gives Jacob a transformed identity. A transformed identity. You know, God's plan for Jacob was that he would be a patriarch. You know, but like many, uh, perhaps most of the men and women of God that we see in the Bible, Jacob did not start out as a patriarch. He didn't start out as a man of God. He didn't start out as a godly leader who was uh, an example that generations of believers would follow about how to walk with God by faith and how to live a godly life. Jacob started out as a scoundrel. He started out as a deceitful man. He started out as a self-centered person. But God pursued Jacob, and God won over his heart with love and grace. And once the Lord had his heart, then God began to do a work of transformation in Jacob's life. And God gave Jacob a new identity. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you shall no longer be called Jacob. Your name shall be Israel. So God changed his name to Israel. God says, you know, your name is Jacob, That means trickster. But that's who you were, man. That's who you were. You were a deceiver. You were a con man. You were a coward. You were a liar. But that's not who you are anymore. And that's not who you're going to be. I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you a new identity. Israel. You know what Israel means? It means governed by God. It means ruled by God. That's who you are now, Jacob. You're no longer Jacob. You are Israel. You are my man. You are a godly leader. You are a patriarch. You are my faithful servant. That's who I'm making you to be. That's who you're going to be. That's your future. You know, Jacob gets a new name because he gets a new identity. His old name doesn't fit him anymore. That's why God's word says again, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. What that means is that in Christ, you receive a new identity. In Christ, your life takes a whole new direction, trajectory. The gospel message is that in Christ, your identity is not defined by what you have done. In Christ, your identity is defined by what God has done for you in him. I'm going to say that again because I think that's important. In Christ, your identity is not defined by what you've done or where you've been. It's defined by where God is taking you and what he did for you on the cross. 
You may have been a blasphemer. You may have been an immoral person. Maybe you were just the opposite of that. Maybe you were a self-righteous person. Maybe you were condescending. Whatever you were, in Christ, you become a new creation. You get a brand new identity. You become a beloved son, a beloved daughter. Your identity is now redeemed, forgiven, restored, hopeful, joyful. In Christ, your identity is not found in your accomplishments, whether good or bad. Your identity is found in who you are in relation to him. Notice this, Jacob's old name, what was his name about? It was about him. It was all about him, his actions. But his new name is all about who he is in relation to God. You know, God's word is full of stories of people whose lives were so radically changed by God to the point where their old name just didn't fit anymore. They needed a new name. There was a man named Simon. He was a blue-collar kind of guy. He was a manual laborer. You know, and he had this very fiery, unstable temperament. He was the kind of guy who had sudden mood changes, right? He would have these mood swings. He went from one extreme to the other in an instant. He was unpredictable. He was volatile. Maybe you know people like that. Maybe you are somebody like that. In fact, his name, Simon, was very characteristic of his personality. You know what Simon means? It means shifting sands. That's the very picture of instability. That's a perfect description of who he was. Unstable, volatile, wavering, unpredictable, unreliable. He had high highs and low lows. But Simon's life began to change when he met Jesus. And Jesus came into his life and, and brought about such a change in his life that was so radical that he needed a new name. Jesus told him, you know, in John chapter 1, we read that Jesus meets this man for the first time. Someone brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, You are Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, Peter. You know what Peter means? It means rock, right? That's pretty much the exact opposite of shifting sands. They bring this guy to Jesus. The first time he meets him, Jesus looks at him and he speaks into his life and he says, Your name is Simon, shifting sands? No, I'm going to give you a new name, and I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to make you into a rock. I'm going to make you into a stable person. You were unstable. You were shifty. You were volatile. I'm going to give you a new identity. You will be Peter. I'm going to make you a pillar for the church. That's your new identity. Not who you were, but this is who you are. This is who you're going to be in me. Or how about another guy? There's a guy who came from a completely different background than Peter did. He wasn't a manual laborer. He was a pencil pusher. He was a scholar. Uh, he was a guy with a bunch of degrees on his wall, you know, and he came from a wealthy, elite family. He was well-known. He was connected politically. His name was Saul. You know what Saul means in Hebrew? It means desired one. And that's truly descriptive of who he was. He was a big deal right? Saul was not a Christian. In fact, he didn't even like Christians. And in fact, he didn't just not like Christians, but he actually hated their guts. And he didn't just hate their guts, but he actually did something about it. He got a posse, he got a crew, and they went around looking for Christians, and they murdered them. And of course, you know, Paul, or Saul, he was such a big deal, he wouldn't get his own hands dirty. He would just watch and let those other guys get their hands dirty, let them do the, the, the dirty work. 
But Saul's life changed. When? The day when he met Jesus. Jesus showed up and he said, what are you doing, man? He said, isn't it hard for you to keep kicking against the goads, Saul? Isn't it hard for you to keep resisting my will for your life? Because, you know, Saul was like many people who, who are violently opposed to Christianity. You know, when you meet people who are violently opposed to Christianity, you, you have to wonder, you know? Because part of the reason why Saul was so bothered by Christians is because, in fact, he himself was being drawn by the Holy Spirit to become a Christian himself. He was actually wrestling with Christianity. But why didn't he give in? Because he was afraid of the implications. And so many people are, right? What if I give in? What will I lose? Saul was worried that he would lose his identity if he became a Christian. His identity as the desired one. He would lose his identity as a politically connected person. People adored him and they would turn their backs on him. He wasn't sure if he was willing to to risk that. He wasn't sure if he was willing to risk the implications if he actually did give his life to God. Even the Christians, you know, they wouldn't have accepted him because he's been murdering their friends. You know, he would be all alone. But as a result of meeting Jesus, Saul became a completely different person. And he stopped resisting the will of God for his life. You know, this man who had hated Christians not only became a Christian, but he became a missionary. He became a pastor. He wrote almost half the books in the New Testament. And in his letter to the Philippians, he writes about losing his identity and gaining a new identity in Christ. And he writes that looking back in retrospect on all the things that he lost as a result of his choice to follow Christ, he says, you know, I lost relationships, I lost wealth, I lost notoriety, but you know what? In retrospect, all those things are just rubbish compared to what I gained in Christ. And like Peter, this man got a new identity, and he got a new name. Whereas Saul meant desired one, hotshot, big money, what does Paul mean? It means small, little guy, small. He used to think he was a pretty big deal, but in Christ he got a new identity, small, Now, that's not a negative thing. You've got to see that. That's not a negative thing. He's not self-deprecating. He's not just bringing himself down. Rather, he, he had simply come to the realization of who he really was in Christ. He used to think that he was pretty awesome. But he came to know that, in fact, he was just a small man. And the only thing he had going for him was that he had a very big God. And that's why he says in, in Philippians chapter 4, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Saul would have said, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. But Paul says, I no longer have confidence in myself, in my flesh, in my credentials. My confidence is in him alone. I can do all things, but only if he empowers me. And it was Paul, this little man who had big confidence in a big God, who God used to literally change the world as we know it. And he changed the world, how? By preaching the message of the gospel that he himself had experienced. That if you put your faith in Christ, he will make you a new creation. And the old will be washed away. And who you were will be wiped away. And you will receive in him a new identity. Or how about this? Here's one more example. If you look at the 12 men who Jesus called to be his disciples, right? 
in the Gospels, you see that he went out and he handpicked all these guys, right? He said, you, you follow me, you follow me. He handpicked them. It wasn't that he just took whatever he got. He actually went out and picked them for himself. But look, if you look at this group and you look at their credentials, you see this is like the craziest ragtag group of misfits that you could possibly imagine. You know, if you were planning to change the world, you'd probably want people with influence or people of good reputation at least. But he didn't choose those kinds of people. Uh, he chose neither of those things. Who did Jesus choose? Well, he chooses a bunch of uneducated manual laborers. And then he chooses two guys who are zealots and one guy who is a tax collector. Now that's interesting because, see, the zealots were like political radicals. Uh, their whole thing was that they wanted to overthrow the Roman occupation of Israel. In our modern terms, we would refer to this guy as a potential terrorist, right? Uh, and then we got Matthew, the tax collector. Now, now, we always think of tax collectors as kind of the scum of the earth, right? But, and, they, and they were really viewed as the scum of the earth. But the reason why people hated them is because they represented the Roman establishment. This is the equivalent of a politician, really. He's like a politician who represents the occupying establishment. They viewed this guy as a traitor. So my point is this. Think about this. Jesus purposefully chose to have disciples from both ends of the political spectrum. He chose radical liberals and radical conservatives. And he put them together. These are people who would have been at each other's throats normally. But here's what happens when they meet Jesus. They get a new identity. You're no longer Simon the Zealot. Now you're Simon the disciple of Jesus. You're no longer Matthew the tax collector. Now you're Matthew the disciple of Jesus. You're no longer Peter the fisherman. You're Peter the disciple of Jesus. Their, their identity was no longer wrapped up in politics and their affiliations and their jobs and what they did, but their identity was who they were in relation to Christ, right? In relation to Jesus. And what about those dumb fishermen? Here, here's the thing. In the book of Acts, we read this amazing statement. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says this. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In Christ, these, these dumb fishermen, they got a new identity also. They were no longer uneducated men, but they were now disciples of Christ. They were friends of Christ. They were apostles of Christ. They were men who had been sent out on a mission to carry out the, the, the mission of Jesus to preach the gospel. These dumb fishermen got new identities. They became evangelists and pastors and missionaries and leaders of the most significant movement that has ever touched the face of this earth. You know, for me, my identity changed when I became a Christian. Rather than all the other options out there, you know, rather than being a, a stoner or a slacker or a loser or a punk, I got to become a believer. I got to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And maybe you too. Maybe God brought about such a radical change in your life that you used to have nicknames. People used to call you names, maybe justifiedly, that no longer apply to you because you're a different person now. You become a new person in Christ. You have a new future, a new direction. And notice what happens later on in chapter 35. Here's what happens. Rachel gets pregnant again with her second child. 
and she gives birth to the child, but because of complications in her labor, she dies giving birth. Now, we don't know why. Maybe she was bleeding, maybe she got an infection, but she dies. But before she dies, she names her son Ben-Onai. You know what that means? It means son of my sorrow. It's kind of a bummer of a name, right? But look at what Israel does. Look at what he does now. He takes his son and he says, no, that's not going to be your name. You're not going to be called Ben-Onai, son of my sorrow. You're going to be called Benjamin. You're going to be called son of my right hand, son of power, strength, authority. That will be your name. He's saying, just as God spoke into my life and gave me a new name and a new identity, I'm speaking into your life too, son. I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you a different identity. And moms and dads, I think it's important that we do that too. Like Jesus did, like Jacob did, we need to speak into the lives of our kids and tell them who they are. Give them an identity. They need to hear it from us. You know, what we see in them, what we see and hope for their future, who we see that God has made them to be. But here's the point. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, and in Christ we receive a new identity. And so let us be people who embrace that identity of who we are in Christ. That's what Jacob does. Check out, if you've got your Bible, 20, verses 20 and 21. Notice, Jacob buries Rachel, but Israel rises up and carries on. So once again, let us be people who embrace our identity of who we are in Christ. And finally, after giving Jacob a renewed direction, a transformed identity, God gives Jacob a new community. That's in the last few verses of the chapter. We read about this nation that God's bringing about. You know, we've seen so far in Genesis this, that God is creating a nation. That's the story that we're reading, the creation of a nation. That's why he called Abraham. That's why he gave him promises to make him into a great nation. He's creating a people for a purpose. The the people will be the nation of Israel. Their name, Israel, ruled by God, that will be their identity. They will be a nation that knows God. And their purpose will be to make God known to the nations. And it is through this nation that God will come into the world, right, as the Messiah, to take upon himself the sins of the world, to rise from the dead as the first fruits of the coming resurrection. But after Jesus came, after he died, after he rose again, after he ascended into heaven, he began gathering another group of people. He began to create another nation. They too are to be a nation ruled by God. They too exist for a purpose, the purpose of making him known to the world. They are a nation which is formed from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. They are the assembly of the redeemed. You know, they are those who are born of, as the children of Abraham, but not born of the seed of Abraham. They are the assembly of those who have not only been born, but who have also been born again. Peter says this to those of us who have been born again through living faith in Christ. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God was creating a nation in that day, and God is still creating a nation and a people in our day. He's calling together a people for his name's sake, for his glory, and we are a part of that. You know, God is gathering a people for himself here in northern Colorado, all around the world. And we have a purpose and we have a mission as his people. And that is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is a new community. So in this chapter, we see the extent of the transformation that God brought about in Jacob's life. In wrapping up Jacob's story, we see that God gave Jacob a renewed direction, a transformed identity, and a new community. And so my prayer for us as we go from here today, may we have a renewed sense of direction. May we embrace our identity in Christ, our new identity, our transformed identity, who we are in Christ. And may we fulfill our purpose as the new community of God's people. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that in you we can be new people. We get a new identity. We get a new direction. Lord, I thank you that in you there is true and lasting transformation. Lord, I thank you that we aren't condemned to just be stuck in who we are, who we were, our past, Lord. Thank you that in you we get a new future, a new identity, a new hope a new direction. Lord, let us walk in that newness of life. Lord, let us walk and embrace that new identity of who we are in relation to you. Thank you, Lord, that in you we are beloved children. We are redeemed. We are saved. We are hopeful. And Lord, we want to walk with you. We want to give you all the glory with our lives. Lord, help us to walk as a new community of your people. In Jesus' name.